and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast hosted by Amy Baker. The Riff Raff is a writer's community that champions the work of debut authors and provides guidance, support and services for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. On today's podcast, I'm chatting to Cheryl Lulian Tan, author of Sarong Party Girls, a satirical novel about what it can be like to be a modern woman in Asia. Cheryl is a New York-based journalist who has been staff writer at the Wall Street Journal, InStar Magazine and the Baltimore Sun. Her writing has appeared all over the place in publications including the New York Times, National Geographic, the Paris Review and the Washington Post. Today we discuss inhabiting your characters to create a believable first-person narrative, revelling in the details of your story and conveying perspective shifts in your characters. Ayo, I tell you, if we do nothing, we are confirmed getting into Bang Balls territory. We have to figure out how to make this happen, and we have to do it now. After all, we've wasted enough time already, and we don't have any more time to waste. We are not young anymore, you know. Fan just turned 27, my 27th birthday is two months away, and Emos is not far behind. If we don't get married, engaged, or even nailed on a boyfriend soon, my god, we might as well go ahead and book a room at Singapore Casket because our lives would already be over. In many ways, in Singapore, our kind of age is already considered a bit left on the shelf. Ordinarily, I don't heck care about such things. Hello, Jazzy here knows she's quite power. Usually, unless the guy is blind or stupid or some shit, whatever guy I have my eye on, I also can get. Even at my age. You ask any bookie out there, my odds are damn good. But it's true that Singaporean men are a bit fussy, especially when it comes to older girls. But luckily for us, we still have one big hope. Ang more guys. That's what we need to be thinking about. These white guys, they you really catch no ball about Asian ages. Us 20-something-year-old Asian girls, if you wear a tight, tight dress or short, short skirt, these angmas will still steam over you. Sometimes, some of them will even go for the really old ones. 30-year-old women also have chance. Even so, we cannot waste time. And we must be serious. Because once you manage to marry a white guy, then you are only one step away from the number one champion status symbol in Singapore. A half angmore kid. The Chanel of babies. But how to get an angmore husband? I used to think that getting an Angmo husband was quite easy to do. I mean, hello, we girls are always out there, meeting Angmos, letting them buy us drinks, dance dance, rubber rubber a bit. So surely one day we'll just naturally end up being with an Angmo husband, right? At least that was the thinking law. Recently though, I realized something that started getting me really nervous about achieving our goal. And it only hit me on that super cock night, the one we, where we lost sure. I tell you, I cannot even talk about that night right now without vomiting blood. Sure, so pretty, so sweet. She could have had any guy she wanted. But after that night, I realized that yes, we've been quite focused over the years. If you count up all the guys our group has dated since secondary school, most of them are angmos, not always good quality ones. Some of them, I have to admit, either don't wear suits to work type. But still, in this small country, to be able to say that most of our boyfriends and flings have come from England or, sh- or some shit is quite good luck. Most girls here end up with local boyfriends the whole time. What nonsense, I tell you. If a bus runs me over on the street tomorrow, Jazzy here will go up with no regrets. Hi, Cheryl. Thank you so much for coming on the Riff Raff podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about your debut novel, Sarong Party Girls. So how about we start with a little intro into what the book is about? Uh, well, the book is really about, it follows um, a bunch of women. It follows Jazzy, um, who's the protagonist, and her friends, who are 26, 27, and they're at that age where they're starting to think seriously about marriage um, because they think, 
you know, it, it's, it's time to get serious and it's, it's time to, to sort of uh, move into that stage of their lives. Um, and it's kind of, it's a satirical novel um, that kind of says something about what it can be like to be a woman in modern Asia. Uh, because if, if, if all of them, as they kind of go through getting to know men and, and sort of, and, um, and, and the whole, I guess, dating and clubbing and bar and restaurant scene there. Um, one of the things that I, I kind of wanted to, to talk about is um, in, in this book um, is sort of, uh, you know, gender and, uh, and race, sort of r- racial politics in Singapore, um, because the, the term Sarong Party Girls refers to a type of woman that has existed in Singapore for decades. Um, it, it's a woman who, who basically her, her main goal in life is to meet and marry uh, an expat man, because that's seen as a ticket to a good life. Um, and, and when I was growing up in Singapore, um, SPGs were sort of, a, SPG was a, with Sarong Party Girls was a derogatory term. You did not want to be an SPG. Um, but I remember I would pass these SPG bars where women would go and meet expat men, expat men would go looking for local women. And I always wondered, you know, what would drive people to to sort of pick someone based on, on race or nationality, specifically because of that. And, um, and Jazzy and her friends, um, they do kind of decide that they're going to be SPGs, but not for the reasons that you might think. Um, they're sort of doing it as a sort of feminist rebellion in a way. They're rejecting the traditional Singaporean patriarchy by saying, you know, we're not going to do the traditional wife thing. We're going to try to be expat wives and, and live our lives in this, this bigger way. So it's sort of turning that on its head a little bit. Okay. Yeah, you can you can see that. Um, Ken, so um, so you say that you, you you know growing up in Singapore, you saw this scene quite a lot, and I wondered whether you could talk a little about the origin of the of the story, the moment you were kind of inspired to write it. Was it back when you were growing up there? Um, you know, this is a story. I guess when I started writing this book, I realized I'd been thinking about it for decades. Um, and uh, it was the same with it was the same with my first book too, A Tiger in the Kitchen. I realized I'd been thinking about it for decades. Um, and this sort of this book sort of came about very organically. I um, had been I was I was a journalist at the Wall Street Journal for several years, and I happened to write one food story about my grandmother's pineapple tarts and how I missed them and I missed her and she died when I was 11 and it somehow got turned into my first book A Tiger in the Kitchen and so what I did for A Tiger in the Kitchen was I went back to Singapore for a year I live in New York um, and uh, from Chinese New Year to Chinese New Year researching the food of my grandmother's the food of my aunties cooking with my aunties and my mother in the kitchen and um, so what I did when I was researching was I would spend days in the kitchen with my aunties and my mom and my grandmother Um, and then at night I had reconnected with my girlfriends, uh, whom I'd known since I was six, and uh, and they had done the traditional Singaporean thing and gotten married in their twenties, and then discovered uh, for various reasons they'd gotten divorced in their early thirties, and suddenly they were back on the market, and so they said, you know, now that you're home for a lot, why don't you come hang out with us? And so when I was hanging out with them, some of them had jokingly declared themselves as modern SPGs, and I thought that was very funny, and I was like. Well, you know, where is this all coming from? And, and they, they like Jazzy in the book, had said, you know, we did the traditional thing. Like, we married the nice Singaporean boy. And it kind of turned out that, you know, they were not so nice. <laughs> and, uh, and the more we talked about it, the more I kind of realized that this sort of concubine culture that we had grown up watching in our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents' generation had never quite gone away. Um, you know, our grand, our grandparents, our great grandparents had multiple wives, mistresses, etc. And uh, and it turned out that there was a sort of culture that still, to some degree, 
supported and maybe encouraged or, you know, or women had to kind of look the other way. And um, so as we were talking more and more about this and they were dragging me out to these clubs and I was watching this sort of modern SPG scene unfold, um, I started to think, well, maybe there's something here. And one night a friend of mine jokingly said, um, you know, the point of being an SPG of the whole goal is to have a Chanel baby, right? <laughs> and, and I said, what's a Chanel baby? And she said, well, it's a baby that's half expat half Singaporean it is the Chanel of babies and I remember thinking at the time that this is so brilliant it says everything about SPG culture it says everything about materialism uh sort of what it can be like in in certain pockets of modern Singapore uh capitalism values etc and uh, I remember I went home and I wrote down the word Chanel baby. And, um, mm-hmm. and so when, when I got done with my book, A Tiger in the Kitchen, uh, and my agent said, well, what's next? I said, well, you know, I think I'm going to write about Sarong Party Girls. So that's kind of how the book came about. It was very, it was very organic. Yeah. Um, and the research sort of happened as I was researching another book. So it was, it was very strange. So, but the, it was great because the moment, you know, I was done with the first book, I was ready to work on the second book. Yeah. And I, I like that when you're kind of in the creative process of, of creating your first book, you're more open to ideas. You're more kind of like aware of what would make a good story and that kind of thing often, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. And it was also, you know, I, I, you know, I, I've said like, I didn't find this book, this book found me. Um, it just so happened that everything just sort of happened. Um, I happened to be in Singapore. My girlfriend happened to be newly divorced. You know, we were going out to these SPG bars. They had declared themselves modern SPGs. Um, so everything just sort of came together all very organically. It's kind of like the, um, Elizabeth Gilbert's idea, you know, in big magic that kind of ideas find you at the right time. Yeah, yeah, that's very, very true. Um, so, so we'll we'll say I mean, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, sort of at the time, I wasn't fully aware that I was I was researching the book, so I was just sort of immersing myself in this and just sort of observing and writing down snippets and dialogue and and anecdotes. And uh, so a lot of the you know the book is uh, I had intended to write the book as nonfiction at first, um, and uh, and I remember when I was because you know I was a journalist for many years. My first book was nonfiction, and um, and I thought, well, I'm just going to do another nonfiction book. And uh, I was I was. I told my agent I was going to write the book proposal for it and it was due and I was really struggling with it even though I had all this material and it just wasn't coming out right and I remember literally a day or two before it was this 50 page proposal was due to her and I had nothing um I sat down and thought well I have all this material why don't I just sit down and and try writing as fiction maybe that will free me up it will open some sort of unlock some sort of thing in my head and I'll be able to write a proposal after that and I sat down and I wrote essentially what is uh, a chunk of the first chapter um in in two days and uh and it just it just came out in this sort of torrent and uh and I sent it to my agent and I remember thinking okay she's either going to be very disappointed um or maybe or maybe she's going to be like you know what like you're fired or <laughs> um but she called back and she said you know keep going and so it, so that also the decision to write this as a novel also was very organic in a way it, it stems from sheer panic <laughs> <laughs> often the best things do um did you, did you find how did you find you know had you written fiction before or was this your kind of first foray into fiction 
I've written a few short stories for various anthologies. Um, they're Marijuana Chronicles. Um, and also, I had also edited um, a, a fiction anthology, Singapore Noir, uh, which is put out by Akashic Books, which does a, a noir series. So it's a, it's a collection of uh, noir stories set in the city, like Berlin Noir, Amsterdam Noir, uh, Brooklyn Noir, etc. And um, and so I, I edited Singapore Noir for them. And, and as part of that, um, the, I had a short story in there, too. So I've done short stories, um, but I've not written a novel. I, and and I've never, I you know, as a child, I grew up... Um, um, you're reading voraciously. I remember tearing through Enid Blyton when I was very, very small, and um, and you know the Enchanted Wood and 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 the Faraway Tree making me inspired. I always thought I'm, I'd love to write a novel someday, um, but then you know just sort of life takes you on these turns, and and you kind of forget about it um, because I love my job. I was a journalist. I loved what I was doing, and then all of a sudden you know your whole life changes. You write one story and it gets turned into a book, and then all of a sudden you're you write a book, and then it, it, it all of a sudden you're a novelist so um so shows you just have to be kind of like open to inspiration when it comes you know yeah yeah and I'm I'm very I've learned to become you know I, I'm from Singapore which is a very uh uh, in, in some ways, it's a very rigid country in that, you know, you're sort of, everything's very planned out. Um, you know, you, you want to make sure you know exactly what you're doing. You know, everything's very specific. Um, and so I always approach my life in that way. Like, okay, what is, what is my one-year goal? What is my five-year goal? Where am I going to be in 10 years? Um, but never would I have predicted that my life would have taken this turn into books, you know, first nonfiction. And then, fiction um so I've, I've learned to, to to be much more open to you know the the balls that the universe loves at you yeah absolutely it's so important and what do you think um in terms of kind of writing the memoir I believe you like smashed it out in something like seven weeks is that right <laughs> um yes I really you know I, as a journalist I I I, I I'm used to very tight deadlines yeah um and uh, and this we my publisher Hyperion had wanted this to come out in, within the Tiger Year, and as it was, we were we were really pushing it. It was coming out at the tail end of the Tiger Year, so that deadline was not movable. Um, I mean, it could have been moved, but it would have been not great. Um, and so it was. And I, of course, during the year of research, I should have been writing all along. I did write chunks here and there, but I didn't really have you know anything sort of co- fully cohesive. Um, and so when I got done with the research, the book was due in seven or eight weeks. And I was, I, I was like, well, you know, it's got to happen. So, so, um, so I went um, to Yaddo, which is this um, artist residency in upstate New York. Um, and, uh, and it was, it was, that was, that was the place that saved me. If I hadn't gone to Yaddo, I wouldn't, I would not have met my deadline. Um, you know, it's a magical place. They feed you, they give you coffee. All you have to do is wake up and write, but it's also very inspirational because so many great people have been there. Patricia Highsmith wrote strangers on a train there. Um, you know, yeah, Mariputo wrote The Godfather there. Um, you know, West Side, part of West Side Story, I believe, was written there. Um, you know, James Baldwin, Carson McCullers, uh, Philip Roth, you know, they've all been there. And so to wake up in a place like that and know that all these people have done, you know, Sylvia Plath wrote part of The Colossus there. Um, oh, to wake up every day there and go, oh, my God. You know, you know, Sylvia Plath wrote part of the classes here. What am I going to do today? Um, so that was <laughs> like no pressure, right? That's quite the motivation. But also to be around yeah. where so much magic happened, you know, like it makes you think, you know, well, I might be one of the, the names that's remembered like that from the, it's, it's definitely, I can imagine a super motivational factor. We, 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 we learned for the whole seven weeks. 
Yes, I was there for seven weeks, and I wrote like a maniac, and everyone was very sympathetic toward me. The other writers, every every night at dinner, would sort of very cautiously be like, hey, did you have a good day? Because nobody wants to talk work out, because that just stresses you out. So I'd be like, yeah, 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 you know, so everyone was just sort of very very supportive and rooting for me to meet that deadline and um, I'll never forget them. Some of the writers and artists and, and painters and photographers I met there are still some of my best friends today. Oh, that's nice. I suppose um, friendships forged under intense pressure. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, so, um, having, having met that incredibly tight deadline, you know, other, obviously other writers are going to find themselves in that situation at some point. Do, as, aside from going to a wonderful, magical place, um, do you have any other tips for Pete for writers that are working to an extremely tight deadline? Well, what I've tried to do is um, I've tried to recre- recreate as best I can the Yaddo experience where I am. So right now I'm working on my next novel, and um, I'm hoping to get it done very soon. And New York is hugely distracting, especially during the summer, because everyone visits, and everyone is like, I haven't seen you in three years, why can't we have dinner? And um, and so what I what I try to do is sort of recreate that that solitude here. And so I've, I've you know basically told my friends, I, you know, I'm not at a writing residency, but I'm having my own writing residency here. So I'm not making any plans. So this summer, you know, I've been very antisocial. Um, you know, my first answer to every invitation is no. It might turn into yes, but it's no usually. Um, and so so I've I've been trying to be very disciplined about that, and you know, just sort of. Um, you know, have write as much as I can. I didn't used to, I didn't, I don't usually, I don't usually um, do the thousand words a day or like a specific word count thing um, because in the past it hasn't worked very well for me. I've tended to be a writing in big spurts kind of person. Um, but this summer I've been trying to do the, the word count a day thing. So that's, that's worked out rather nicely. Um, although usually I know it's, a, it's very unromantic and many writers have these wonderful things that they say about their writing processes and, and how it all comes together for them. But, um, in the past for, for SPG certainly, um, and, and Tiger as well, I, things have come in massive spurts. So like, I, I remember, um, I wrote the last third of SPG in this frenzy, like two and a half, three week stretch where I wrote like 30,000 words. I basically slept five hours a night and I wrote like the last third of the book in two, two and a half, three weeks. But I had spent literally two months before that tearing my hair out and just sort of going like, why isn't it coming out? Why isn't it coming out? And then all of a sudden, you know, it's like, uh, it's like that matrix moment where like you can see the code and like it's happening, you know, and then you sit down and like everything just happens. And so when people ask me, you know, what is writing like for you? And I always say, well, it's sort of like going to the bathroom. Um, you know, you, you, you can go and you're like, well, I really should pee. Um, but then, you know, if you're not ready to pee, like nothing's going to happen, but all of a sudden, like you're at the shopping mall or whatever, and you're like, now I've got to pee. And you're like running to the bathroom. And then that's kind of like when the magic happens. <laughs> so I love for that. me, <laughs> I kind of feel like I'm with my writing. I'm perpetually waiting to for, for that moment where I'm like, I've got to run to the bathroom. Everything is happening right now. Yeah, I love that. I love that. And it's, I suppose it's um, it's another example of how you've just got to tr- trust the creative process and trust that you'll get to the like once you're once you're immersed in your story. Once you get to the once those bits are, are fully formed in your head and you know what you want to say, they'll come. But sometimes. You need to cover other bits first. You need to write other bits, establish other things to to get those answers. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's that's very very true. And you know, I, I guess in some ways, other writers when they talk about the muse, this this is probably what they're talking about. Um, you know, waiting for the muse to come. Um, you know, and, and I probably should should start saying that because that's a far more romantic way of expressing this. <laughs> but you can't sit around and wait for that for that muse. You have to do the sort of like hard slog, and then those moments are more likely to come because you're sat at your desk. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I did. I spent the the months before that. I sort of, you know, like you know, uh, just randomly. I was I wasn't cleaning off. I wasn't doing. I was I I was very present. The book was very present in my head the the entire time. And it's sort of you know I I realized I was sort of building the world in my head the whole time. I just wasn't writing about it. I was I just wasn't writing it um, page by page. You know, I was writing down anecdotes and like little scenes here and there, but I wasn't actually just going through the book so it wasn't that I wasn't working that whole time I was working constantly you know I was dreaming about Jazzy I was dreaming in English yeah. <laughs> and you know I was getting to know her better I was getting to know her world and her friends better and so the book was just very gradually coming together in my head I just needed sort of that time to kind of let it percolate and, and have a good think definitely and I think that part of the writing process is often not given enough credit that time when you're kind of sitting around establishing the kind of emotion behind the narrative and the sort of events that you want to cover you know it's because you're not actually getting always getting words down that are actually going to be in the finished manuscript you kind of dismiss it as not valuable time when in fact it's completely essential (laughs) yeah yeah and I forget which writer it was I'm not sure it might have been Hemingway who you know like what you see in the book on the pages that's the tip of the iceberg you know there's this whole massive thing underneath it that the reader talks about the tip couldn't happen without all that stuff underneath yeah exactly exactly i am i'm going to ask you a little bit of a selfish question now because um i wrote a memoir and now i'm writing my first novel and uh, so yeah cool but i wondered if you had any specific advice for people who've written memoirs who are now taking on novels Well, I think, um, you know, they're both, uh, you know, especially if it's a, if it's creative nonfiction, you know, I sort of approached it the same way, you know, you're, you're telling, um, you're telling a good story regardless, you have to build the world, it has to be convincing, it has to be detailed, you have to understand, you have to, you have to feel, smell, see everything. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, I was a journalist for many years. And so for me, you know, when I, when I wrote feature stories, especially, you know, I really had to make the world that I was writing about come to life for people who had never been to the place I was writing about, or, or had never tasted the food I was writing about. And I had to make it come to life as vividly as possible. So I've always applied that to all of my writing. The details will, the details Will, will sell the book the details will sell the page the details will make a scene um because you know when i you know i i write about singapore a tiny country that a lot of people kind of know um but you know a lot of people haven't visited because it's really far away um i suspect you're you know in, in the uk people are much more familiar with singapore but in america you know there are a lot of people who really have never visited singapore so i knew the onus was on me to really bring it to life and all my books are set in singapore um and so i try to do that sort of using you know it's like i report things out as much as i can you know i put as much detail as possible you know if i'm if i'm introducing readers to a character or a scene or a, or a place like I want that I want them to be there and so that I think is something that's universal 
in all kinds of writing. You know, that, that, that's, that, that quality, I think, is what, if you do it well, that's what makes really great nonfiction, really great memoir. But it also makes, you know, for a really great novel. Because if you get something wrong and you're writing about the universality of life or, or life stories, people will know right away. Um, you know, and, and, and they'll be like, well, there's something that just doesn't ring true about this. And then, and then you're, they're, you're, they're extracted from that world that you're trying to build. And you don't want that. You want them in that world. You want them going along with the flow. Of course, because if something seems off, it's, it's, it's a huge distraction that could even cause them to kind of think, well, that's not right. And, you know, dismiss the book. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's yeah. great advice. Like the, it being in the detail. I really like that. That's, um, and it also the details are the fu- are really fun to write, aren't they? I'm enjoying that part <laughs> of the process. Um, so you touched on it very briefly earlier. So the book is written in, the, in first person from the perspective of Jazzy. And oh my goodness, I think this is the most voice driven book I've ever read. She speaks in <laughs> Singlish, which yes. is this um, seriously distinctive patois, which I understand is a mixture of English, Malay, Mandarin, a number of other Asian dialects. Yes. Um, how, um, yeah, how easily did this, this voice come to you in this English? I mean, is it something that you have spoken or, or did, it, did it require a little work to kind of get into that, into that voice? Well, I've always, um, I've always spoken Singlish, and all Singaporeans speak Singlish to a certain degree, um, but we tend to code switch. For example, the Singlish you speak with your grandmother or your mother um, or your friends um, or, or, or the person you're, you're viable neurals from, that's a different Singlish than maybe the Singlish you might speak to your boss or like in your workplace or in class. Um, so it's, 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 um, we speak varying degrees of it all the time in Singapore, you know, in, in, um, in school, you have to speak more proper English. So it's much more British English, um, not perfect Queen's English, although, you know, that does happen sometimes as well, um, where we have to, um, you know, and so I've, I've always spoken, I've always spoken Singlish to some degree and my entire family, except for my sister, my sister lives in Hong Kong. Um, my whole family lives in Singapore. So, um, you know, I go back as much as I can. And, uh, if my mother were to call me right now, I would switch back right away yeah. in my head. It's like a different language. So when I, my American friends that visit me in Singapore, they're like, you're a completely different person here because you, you speak completely differently. And because I speak you know, varying degrees of English depending on who I'm talking to. But also, you know, we speak a more British English there. So, you know, I'll be like, I can't instead of I can't. Yeah. And, um, you know, so think, think like that in another trash can and, and, and various little things. So to me, writing jazzy in English um, wasn't hard because I, I've been so immersed in it all my life. And, um, you know, I, I actually, I love Singlish so much. And and it's something that I find, it's such a great, um, you know, people like to think of Singapore as this very kind of sterile, uh, perfect place. Um, and, you know, it's, it's wealthy, it's dynamic, it's successful. And yes, it's all of those things. Um, it's also very strict. We have very strict laws. But at the same time, there's this kind of, like very cheeky subversive side to Singapore that a lot of people don't see. And it really comes out best or it's really expressed best when people speak Singlish and, and you can, you can hear it. And, and, and the, the language itself, Singlish is, is very, um, it's very sort of bold. It's very vulgar. It's very direct. Um, it's cheeky. It's funny. It's hilarious. Um, you know, it's it's very sort of in your face. And I, and I love that because I think that that's a part of our national identity that the 
world doesn't very often see because, you know, they're like, you know, your number one port, number one airline, you know, number one airport in the world. It's like they know us for these things that, that, that are sort of the shiny veneer. But beneath that, there's this sort of very um, – kind of loose like sort of jovial like um cheekiness that i that i just love um yeah. and a lot of humor in it too yeah. and uh yeah so i i really wanted um and jazzy would not be someone who speaks perfect english um i mean she tries to she speaks a better english a, a, you know sort of a more proper english when she's at work or she's meeting like you know uh her boss is taking her to drinks with the editor of like you know some other newspaper that kind of thing she, she would speak more proper english but with her friends she wouldn't speak very proper english and so to have her if i had had her speak proper english um that would have that wouldn't have been in character at all i didn't want that at all yeah, I, I thought that the um, like the cheeky the cheekiness of it and and the how vulgar it was like really tickled me. I did find it um, very a very humorous novel, and um, you know it's it's it is a very it is a, a very funny novel. But there are there is a real dark kind of underside to it and some like some seriously unsettling moments that as someone who's never I've been to Singapore but only passing through as a tourist. You know I haven't really experienced a night out there or anything like that. And, you know, and it, it did kind of open my eyes to, you know, the sexualization of Asian women and double standards in terms of, like, women having, having to, like, protect their honour, but also being treated as objects constantly, particularly from Western men. And, you know, it kind of looks at how women are complicit in the exploitation as well, and there's internalised misogyny in there, and it's, you know, like, the, the humour that's used over top of it, um, it's, it's, it's done so well because it's it, it helps you understand kind of jazzy and the other girls vulnerabilities and the injustices that they suffer and I just wondered if yeah if you could talk a little about the role that humor played in your novel and how you used it to tell the story that you wanted to tell um well it's a, it is a very it is a very dark novel um mm. despite the title and despite the the, the premise um you know it, it's it's a I I wanted to kind of show what it can be like if you are a woman with um, a young woman with few options and you kind of feel like you have to play the game a little bit or you, you try to master it, you try to come out on top. And, um, and, you know, Jazzy, she acknowledges she's not very smart. You know, she doesn't come from a wealthy family. Her best option in life is to, to marry as best as she can. And in that, in that way, that's really not as, that's not very much different from um, all of Jane Austen's novels. Um, you know, it's just sort of, you, you know, you've got to better your life by making a really good marriage. And so, you know, starting from that, you know, and, the the path that she takes she she starts it's sort of like the screw gradually turns and it gets darker and darker and darker and um because as she gets deeper into this quest of hers she sort of she realizes more and more how the world that she entered is not quite what she thought it would be and that and and, and she sort of gra and she grapples with that and uh, so I wanted really to kind of show um, you know it's satire so it, I wanted to I wanted to kind of show and take a kernel of truth and kind of blow it up um, but it's also very well researched I mean I, you know the the KTV karaoke TV lounge chapter mm -hmm. um, you know it's it's something that you know you see KTV lounges all over Singapore um, you know it's going to KTV lounges for men in business, that's part and parcel of doing business. And, they're, and, they're um, and you know, the wives people, kind of have to look for away. For people that don't know, KTV lounges are, are kind of billed as karaoke lounges. Yes, and you rent a private room um, and uh, and you pick a girl. Each guy picks a girl or you pick a bunch of girls and then they, the girls 
sing for you and perhaps do other things as well. Um, so, you know, and that culture had, has always really disturbed me. And they're so rampant. You see KTV lounges everywhere in Singapore. And not all of them are, are sort of glorified brothels, but a lot of them are. But, um, but so I, I kind of, I, I really, I wanted to kind of take a look at this world and, um, and I begged my male friends who have to go for work. Um, to take me, you know, I'm like, you know, your, your company's spending all this money. Like, can't you just sneak me in? And they were like, no, we can't take you. So instead I, I, I interviewed them, you know, in great detail. And I asked them, you know, what's it like? Your name's not going to be attached in this book. I'm not going to thank you. Don't worry. The acknowledgements, <laughs> but you know, tell me what it's like. And so, so they actually, so everything in that chapter really came from that. And I was actually really shocked by all the stories that they told me. I was. And, um, and when the book came out, actually, you know, uh, uh, an old friend of mine, actually it was my first boyfriend and, uh, <laughs> and my teenage boyfriend. And, and he said, oh, you know, those stories in your book with the KTV just they're nothing. He said, you know, I've been to better ones. <laughs> and like, and he starts telling me all these other stories. I'm like, oh my God, wow. A, this is horrific. And B, thank God I never married you. <laughs> 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 um, but you know, I wanted it to be this sort of unflinching look at um, at these pockets of uh, of a society in which um, you know people have this view that it's very pristine, it's very perfect. Um, but there are there's this very dark side to it, and I wanted to kind of explore that. You know, Singapore is a very small country. You can drive from one end of the island to the other in an hour, and um, you know, but it's also got a, a huge population, and it's a very mixed population. You know, we have you know a lot of expats, we have uh, Chinese, Indians, Malay, um, you know, all Singaporeans, um, Eurasians, all kind of living together. People of different classes, incredibly, incredibly wealthy people, um, and then also you know just re- people who are just sort of living hand to mouth. And we're all sort of always constantly banging up against each other. The worlds are constantly colliding because it's such a small space. So if you go to restaurants, bars, clubs, you're going to see the sort of clashing of like different, different sets of people constantly. And this sort of tight pressure cooker environment. And so to me, I'm interested when I think about Singapore, I'm interested in where the cracks are. And, you know, for me, like, like exploring this kind of SPG culture and this sort of world that Jazzy is in, um, you know, I wanted to kind of like look at the cracks and kind of poke at them a little bit and, um, and, um, and, and show how dark it can be. But, you know, as you mentioned, um, humor is a great, humor is essential, I think, in this book, because if I were to write this, this, this book about how awful it can be to be, you know, jazzy and to live that life. Um, you know, my God, people would put it down into the third chapter because it's just too dark. It's too awful. Like, why would you carry on reading? <laughs> You'd want to, you know, wash your brain out. Um, so humor and, and jazzy sort of approaches it all with this sort of very clear eyed in a way, just sort of assessing every situation as she encounters it. Um, but you know, and, and the humor is very necessary because you need some levity to sort of balance all that darkness. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you know, otherwise it just, it's just the, it's like baking a cake. It's like the ratio is just off. Yeah. I thought, I thought that the, um, you know, because obviously Jazzy and her friends, you know, they're, they're quite materialistic, but that's kind of like how they're taught to be. And they're obviously man obsessed, but that's obviously what they're, what they're, you know, how they, how, you know, how they're raised to, you know, to think. And so, and, and it's, but what you do so well is the way that you infuse the narrative with growth, but it's not kind of, it doesn't ever kind of verge into growth that seems unrealistic do you know what I mean like you know like often books mm-hmm. can kind of like at the end it could be well that's a bit convenient that suddenly there's been like a complete mindset shift and even though obviously there's hints of that in the book 
Um, mm-hmm. It's done. It's it's done. It's handled very well. And um, you know, oh, obviously, you. obviously, a lot of authors, you know, are trying to convey a similar sense of perspective shift within their characters. And um, I just wondered how you approached conveying that progression in um, in Jazzy's mindset throughout the novel. Um, you know, I, I keep using the word organic, but it, it was actually very organic. I, when I started writing the book, um, I, I knew what the first chapter was because I had written it. Um, and I had a very strong sense of what the final scene was of, of her and of her, you know, alone assessing her life. And I knew those two things, but I didn't know how she would get from point A to point Z. And, um, and so a lot of, a lot of building that narrative um, of her pro- and her progression and her growth really came from understanding her. And so a lot of, you know, the, the thinking that I did was just sort of trying to understand who she was as a character and what would motivate her. Um, why would she do the things that she does? Um, and, and so that really sort of, you know, I, you know, I'm always so skeptical of the, the people who believe that they're just sitting down and the, the, the character tells them what to do. But in this case, it was it was actually sort of true that I really felt that once I actually got to know her, she was actually really guiding me because I would know right away she wouldn't do that. Like she she this is out of character for her because I had, you know, I known her by to a certain degree by that point. Um, so, you know, and I actually I guess it, it was a progression of me um also, you know, going, seeing myself or, or seeing her in those situations, um, you know, yeah, being horrified or, or being sort of, you know, or reacting to it. And then, you know, just sort of going like, well, what would she do next? Or what, what, what would be the logical thing? And uh, so that's how I sort of progress through the novel with her in a way sort of, sort of guiding me. Um, I, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Crazy. Sense. Did you, because I mean, obviously there is kind of, you know, there, there is a very well mapped out plot, and I, did you map it out, or did you? Because obviously, being a journalist, maybe you're more kind of organised in terms of planning. Did you, did you map out kind of the events that were going to lead her along this certain path? Yeah, I had a rough idea of of the of key things that would that would propel things. You know, her friend getting married. Um, you know, seeing a friend who had successfully married a, a you know, a Brit- British guy and had her own Chanel baby. Um, you know, I, I knew that there would be sort of like key pivotal moments that would trigger things. Um, so I kind of knew what they would be, but I didn't know where they would fall in the novel. Um, I knew that the, the KTV launch chapter would be there. Um, and so I didn't fully map it out, but I had, I did have a rough sense of the things that would shape her and change her. And, uh, and part of, part of these things stem from things that I had seen as I was researching, not researching the book, um, you know, in Singapore. And, um, and, you know, one of the, one of the scenes, all, all the things in the book, there's actually, there's one, one scene that I actually personally experienced and, um, it's the scene in the steakhouse actually. And, um, and I was actually there as a food journalist and the, the, the scene is written exactly as it happened. And, uh, and I remember leaving that dinner and I was, I remember I was shaking with anger when I left and I was so horrified and because I had been there as, as a professional and, you know, I still had some man like grab my butt, you know, it was like, it was, it was this very, it had never happened to me in my life. And I thought, what kind of society is this in which this is just, par for the course or okay. And, you know, I'm someone with far more agency than, you know, the women that people might buy to be their companion. Um, 
And I'm still sort of subjected to that. So I remember when I left that dinner, I wrote everything down and I knew that that was going to be in the book. Um, and so that was, you know, obviously some of the details are changed because, you know, Jessie goes there as the girlfriend of the person. She's just not there as a, a professional journalist. But, um, but you know, so there, there are these things that I, I kind of wanted to put in the book to, to kind of sort of flesh it out, you know, just sort of this, um, you know, how it, how it can be like to perhaps feel that um, you're that you have very, you have limited options. Um, the glass ceiling is low, um, and you know you you really have to fight your way out of whatever of whatever you're born into, perhaps, or this society. Um, and um, and you know, so I hope that sort of came across. And I, you know, I just, I didn't want it to be too dark. So um, you know, but it's sort of um, and and so you know, the book I guess is deceptive in a way because you know the premise makes it sound like, um, you know, just sort of, sort of frothy read, um, you know, but it's really the, that sort of framework is really kind of a Trojan horse in a way. Yeah. And, um, that's, that's exactly, yeah. that's exactly my interpretation of it. You know, I went into it thinking it was going to be something and, you know, <laughs> came out of it. Like my perspective had been changed. My eyes had been opened. And I, it's one of those ones that you think about um, afterwards, particularly actually that state house scene. I mean, obviously the KTV lounge is incredibly shocking and I, I don't think I'll ever be the same again, but you know, that kind of, that sort of, that experience, like that, that scene really stuck with me. So you can, and you could tell that it was infused with kind of real emotion. So it doesn't surprise me that actually you experienced it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, the first draft of that scene, when I wrote it, um, it, it's funny. It was, I wrote it exactly as it had happened. And, um, and I remember when I, when I should, when I sent the manuscript to my agent, she said, you know, the scene, it's just, it, it's just so over the top and it's just too much and it's just too ugly. And I said, but it actually, but it happened exactly. I wrote everything down like the moment I left the dinner and it's verbatim everything. And she said, I remember, I still remember she said, just because, um, just because something is real doesn't make it good fiction. And she was right. <laughs> so I actually went back and I, I, I toned it down. Um, because yeah. I, I realized that the truth was so ugly. It was, I was, I was unbearable. <laughs> and it just, it just, it just, yeah, it just went too, it just went just a little bit too far. Actually, it went a lot too far and it would have, it would have, uh, upset the, uh, the balance of the book. And especially that's close to, close to the end. So like, I didn't want to throw pe people off completely or, yeah. or upset the equilibrium at that point. I suppose that there's a way that you can still convey how awful that situation was without necessarily, you know, being too... Bashing people over yeah, the head. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I, th I think that it, it has enough of an impact, as is, like, but obviously I don't know what really happened, but, you know, it has. it, it definitely has that impact. And I, yeah. I wondered if um, having written a first... Having, having written a first-person narrative, um, firstly, what tips do you have for people that are writing first-person narratives? And also, is it something that you think you'll continue writing from where you continue writing from that perspective um you know I love first person narratives um I love reading them um and you know I what two of my um two of my favorite books are um uh I love two, two of the books I thought about a lot as I was writing SPG um were Portner's Complaint um which was which I found hilarious and I laughed out loud at so much of the book um and um and uh The White Tiger um, by Aravinda Diga, and um, and that also is, is also another sort of dark, funny 
book about modern India. Um, and that says so much, but it's also, you know, it's, it's, it's an amazing read because it's just sort of, you go through it so fast and you're just sort of caught up in this like wave of this voice. And so I really, really love first person narratives. Um, and with Jazzy, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't sit down and go, I'm going to write a first person narrative, um, from her perspective. And it would just sort of came out very organically. And, and I just, you know, I just thought, I want to tell this story. I want to write about this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so, and Jazzy seemed like the perfect voice to kind of tell, to sort of explore this world with. Um, having said that, you know, I'm working on my second novel right now and it's not first person. It's not first person at all. Um, it's set in a very, very different world. Um, you know, it's also set in Singapore. So there's some English. Set in Singapore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. It's like, uh, it's like, it's like I, it's, I, I can't quit it. Um, like but, um, but <laughs> I mean, I find Singapore endlessly fascinating. There's so many different things to write about. I could, you know, write, you know, 20 more books about Singapore and, and they would all be very different. Um, but, you know, but this, but it's, it's a very different world very different protagonists. Uh, there's some Singlish in it because people do speak Singlish even in the all pockets of society. Um, but it's not first person at all. So that's been kind of fun to explore as well. Yeah. Um, and the tips for people writing first person narratives? Um, well, I would say, you know, it's like, uh, it's like, it's like, it's like acting, method acting, I guess, you know, for, for me, it was, it was, a, it was very method writing. And I, I, um, I, I try to, I try to inhabit Jazzy as much as I could. I mean, not doing the things that she did, but, you know, just sort of, if I was in her world, um, you know, like I would wake up in the morning and I, 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 it's, I, I would try not to speak to people or try not to, to watch the news or listen to anything that would sort of get into my head because I wanted to slip into her world and to hear her uh, and to be in her world right away and very vividly. Um, and, you know, it was, is, um, I, I basically try to understand her as much as possible. I tried to pretend when I was writing, I would try to pretend I was her, like, what, what would I do next? Or what would I, and, you know, for me, it's kind of, perhaps it's kind of silly, but um, part of part of getting into that character, that method writing was, um, I actually, and actually I do this even now, but, uh, but when I was writing Jazzy especially, like I, wherever I was in the world, whatever time of year it was, I would always write wearing um, shorts and flip-flops. Um, because in Singapore, you know, that's what I, you know, I'm sort of running around in shorts and flip-flops all the time because it's so hot. And, um, and so I remember I spent part of, um, I remember part of Song Party Girls in, uh, in, at Hawthorne Castle in Scotland. And I was there in March and it was freezing. And, and I still, I said, well, you know, I can't, if I write in jeans, it just feels different. And so I was literally writing in this freezing castle and shorts and flip-flops. And, and I remember <laughs> the staff, like the housekeepers and the, the, the cook, they were just like, this girl's mad. It's like, it's March in Scotland. What is she doing? <laughs> I suppose being but cold part- <laughs> <you> awake. <laughs> I know, but I was like, no, this is necessary. It's part of the process. <laughs> I love it. Um, so, um, can you tell us any more about your about your new book? And, and uh, tell me, you've got a longer deadline for this one. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I, I sort of, I sort of do, and I sort of don't. But um, I mean, it's uh, it's set in Singapore. It's set in a very different world um, from Jazzy's world. It's um, you know, it's, it has another very very strong female protagonist, um, and um, and it's also it's another dark comic novel um, that's also satirical so um so we'll see I'll, I'll share everything when I can uh it's a uh, but it's um you know it's 
it's um it's been a joy to write. I mean, Jazzy was a joy to write because she was, I you know she, she was she was fun. I remember, I remember when I wrote the last few pages of the book, um, and I finally hit hit send. I was I was incredibly sad. I was overcome with this wave of sadness because I spent so much time with her in my head, and and um, you know I, I loved sort of inhabiting her space, um, and uh, and so this person that I, I'm telling the story through now is 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 a very different person, but I'm enjoying her as much as well so um so we'll see that's so um, great it's, it's, i think it's it's very easy to forget that it's an enjoyable process because because you're yeah. kind of you know especially if you're impatient about getting stuff done or you know like and it's and the hard days can sometimes be really hard so it's it's good to remember oh you know this is actually a really fun process and i get to do this and yeah yeah i mean i you know i I, don't get me wrong. There are many, many, many days that where I'm like, oh my god, like it's not coming together. I'm frustrated. I'm pulling my hair. I'm lying on the floor, looking at the ceiling, going, why am I doing? In your flip flops and shorts. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know what? You know when when that when that bathroom moment happens and you're sitting there and you're just you're flying. The words are just coming out. I mean, there's no better feeling because you know you're just you're just going. It's like that. It's that. It's like that gift with the cat and the typewriter. You know, it's like you're just you're just typing as fast as you can and it's just you know the the feeling of you you feel like you're flying it's just immense and I suppose yeah you're right and I suppose in that moment there's there's you can't that relief that something's happening which kind of works with the bathroom analogy (laughs) but it is it is such like a a great moment but you're kind of almost too afraid to stop your to, to stop and appreciate that it's happening because it's just literally pouring out of you like a care bear yeah, that's the page. <laughs> that's very true. You don't want to question it because you don't want the magic to go away. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna definitely be thinking about that bathroom analogy for a while. So, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, I wish you all of the luck in the world with your, with writing your next book, and I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much for coming. I'll well, thank you very much, and I cannot wait to read your book. So, um, <laughs> yes, I will, I will, I will look up your memoir, and I, and good luck with the novel. Thank you so much. Thank you. How do you fancy working with an author within your genre on your work in progress? It's now a possibility with The Riff Rap. We've got a wonderful roster of more than 30 authors for you to work with, starting from around 150 quid. So head over to the website, the-riffraff.com, to check it out. Cheers!